We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed a year of sea change for the u.s men's national team began with carlos cordero winning the race for president of the united states soccer federation we had a lengthy coaching search that ultimately saw greg berhalter taking control of the u.s men's national team and oh by the way did i forget to mention there were some games played too so it's been a busy year for the u.s men's national team to say the least so now allow me to take you back to the beginning. As with most elections, not everyone was happy with Cordero's appointment. To the chagrin and irritation of those who wanted a, quote, soccer person to take the reins, Cordero beat out the likes of Kathy Carter, Eric Winalda, and Kyle Martino. But what is a, quote, soccer person? Well, I addressed that on February 14th. Over the course of the USSF presidential election, many argued, including several candidates, about the need for more, quote, soccer people to be involved in positions of power within the U.S. Soccer Federation. Now, soccer people is often really just code for former players. Many also argued that this election should be the moment when real soccer people take the game back and make decisions focused more on about what is good for the game and less on what is good for the business. This is nothing new. We often look at former athletes as possessing a unique, authentic, or valuable understanding of the game, and one we want to mine. But when the Athlete Council, which by law controls 20% of the vote and consists of 20 former and current players, when it plays kingmaker and it dictates and decides the election by wielding and exercising its collective power and voting in block for the eventual winner, Carlos Cordero, when they do that, they're called cowards. Now, these soccer people are suddenly accused of compromising their values, abdicating their responsibility to support the change that many have called for, or simply betraying the game itself. But you can't have it both ways. And this glaring hypocrisy and contradiction is part of the ugliness that we've seen over this amazing political season. It seems soccer people are great until they do something you disagree with. Following Carlos Cordero's election, the next order of business was naming a technical director for the men's team. Eventually, Ernie Stewart got the nod, but here's what I had to say on February 20th about the challenges that come with handling that position. The U.S. men's national team is going to name a technical director, and that person needs to establish, define, and articulate a clear soccer identity for this team. Now, we don't have to agree with it, but we all need to understand it. However... That's easier said than done in our unique country. Because while our diversity is what makes the U.S. the greatest country in the world, it also poses our biggest challenge to putting a successful soccer team on the field. Because with that incredible diversity comes incredible diversity of thought. If I ask 100 people in the U.S. what good soccer is, 
I'm going to get a hundred different answers. Theoretically, a national team represents the identity of a country on the field. But as a country, we have very little collective acceptance of our soccer identity, our style, or our philosophy. So we've tried to be everything to everybody. Certainly commendable, but what makes a great country doesn't necessarily make a great soccer team. Remember, a national team is not the best players. It's the best collection of players. In the U.S., you're picking 23 players out of a population of 325 million. And we're asking human beings, with all of our biases, our baggage in our history, to pick that team. We talk a lot about the need for inclusion in our sport. But any definition of identity or style of play is inherently exclusionary. Regardless of what the soccer identity looks like, some players will fit, some will have to adjust, and some just won't fit at all. Maybe even some great players. Now I know nothing scares American soccer more than the thought of wasted or unrealized talent. But if we're really serious about improving our national team, first we need to decide what it is we want to be. There will only be one version of an American soccer identity, but I'd rather pick one identity and try to be the best version of it we can be than continue to waste time, energy, and resources being mediocre, trying to be everything to everyone. When it came to securing the combined U.S.-Mexico-Canada World Cup bid, the United States brought out the big guns. President Trump, a lightning rod for controversy every time he fires off a tweet, weighed in on the process. Here's my take on the issue from May 1st. Last week, President Trump voiced support for the U.S.-Mexico-Canada joint bid to host the World Cup 2026 when he tweeted, The U.S. has put together a strong bid with Canada and Mexico for the 2026 World Cup. It would be a shame if countries that we always support were to lobby against the U.S. bid. Why should we be supporting these countries when they don't support us, including at the United Nations? Now, was this a threat? Yeah. Did it violate FIFA's policy on no political interference? Probably not. But it did push the envelope, which is exactly what President Trump does. He took a page literally out of his own book. In The Art of the Deal, President Trump talks about his 11 tactics in business. Number five use your leverage. And that's exactly what he and the Joint Bid Committee have done. World Cups are big business, and despite FIFA's efforts, they are always political. And yes, the Joint Bid helped orchestrate this. POTUS didn't just wake up suddenly one day and decide to tweet about the World Cup. This was calculated and strategic. A not-so-subtle reminder to countries, aka voters, about quid pro quo and the mutual scratching of backs with the U.S. Horse trading is nothing new for politicians, diplomats, and those in business, albeit often with more tact and discretion. Back in 2010, the U.S. bid for the 2022 World Cup. We lost, and we looked naive and idealistic. Fact is, if you're not willing to push the envelope, and I'm not talking about stuffed envelopes, you risk losing. Yes, POTUS is a polarizing figure, and there's an argument that Trump's support is more of a hindrance than a help. But a World Cup bid is not for the faint of heart. You don't get votes for being nice. Having the President of the United States engaged and supportive of a World Cup bid is a good thing. This is bringing the big dog in, and he's being used for his bark as much as his bite. But ultimately, he's being used to get the job done. Later in May, just ahead of the World Cup in Russia, a familiar face showed up to voice his opinion on the U.S. men's national team's failure to qualify, Jurgen Klinsmann. The ex-U.S. manager skirted responsibility for the team's biggest flop of all time and even went as far as to say that the U.S. men's national team could have made the World Cup semifinals. Here's my State of the Union on the matter from May 22nd. 
Jurgen Klinsmann resurfaced this week telling Sports Illustrated and Yahoo that he thought the U.S. would have qualified for the World Cup if he hadn't been fired and that the U.S. could have gone to the 2018 World Cup semifinals and, looking back, he would have done everything the same way. What he didn't do is accept responsibility or apologize for his part in the epic failure to qualify. And, as expected, this did not go over well. We want our pound of flesh. We want contrition, humility, and accountability. We want someone to blame, and we want that someone to publicly accept that blame. We want it because it validates our criticisms and provides comfort that the outcome could have been different. For the record, I think that Klinsman, Arena, and the players are to blame. But with hindsight, it's easy to say you'd do things differently. Will you get some benefit laying yourself at the mercy of the public and asking absolution for your sins? Probably. But it's often disingenuous and it rarely lasts. Coaches make decisions, big and small and they live and die by the results. But just because something fails doesn't mean it's a mistake. You want leaders? Well, leaders believe in themselves. I'd rather follow someone with a flawed plan than no plan at all. Jurgen Klinsmann had a plan. I'm glad he owns it and isn't apologizing for it. It may have failed, but it wasn't a mistake. The World Cup in Russia opened with some outstanding news for the United States. FIFA announced that, along with Mexico and Canada, the U.S. secured the rights to host the 2026 World Cup. I was on the scene when the news broke and released this State of the Union on June 14th from Red Square in Russia. Please bear with the audio quality. It feels good. Doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest. It feels great. At a time when American soccer needs something to feel good about, the news that the Men's World Cup is coming back to the U.S. in 2026 is just what the doctor ordered. Now, make no mistake, this is a seminal moment in U.S. soccer history. This can help usher in a new era of American soccer. We've lived the power of a World Cup. We've seen what it can do for the sport, the country, and the culture. Now, along with our friends from the North and the South, I have no doubt that we are going to put on a show the likes of which the world has never seen. The World Cup is not a panacea. The circus leaves town. It is simply an injection, a stimulant, an accelerant. But it can help propel the game forward in a country that needs all the help it can get. The legacy of the 1994 World Cup is felt and seen in everything from Major League Soccer to the U.S. Soccer Foundation to the supporters' culture to the media to multiple generations who were forever changed by the event, including the guy talking to you right now. So, today is a day of celebration, a day to be proud of what we have done and what we will do. It's plenty of time to argue and debate our problems, but I'll tell you what, this is not one of those times. It's a great day for soccer and a great day for America. Enjoy the moment and savor what is to come. The World Cup is coming back. Panama's destruction early in the World Cup at the hands of England drew frustrations from U.S. fans. Not because we felt bad for our CONCACAF brethren, well, maybe we did a little, but really because we were forced to wonder, what if? What if the U.S. had qualified? Surely we would put forth a better performance, right? Well, here's my take from June 24th, again from Russia, with less than stellar audio quality. Our CONCACAF friends, Panama, they got destroyed by England. It was 6-1. to one. It was nuts. It was a disastrous performance from Panama and certainly not a great advertisement for CONCACAF. But 
I suppose unlike the U.S., at least Panama had the opportunity to have a disastrous performance at the World Cup. Uh, and make no mistake, Panama deserves to be at the World Cup. This Panama team qualified and earned their spot. And in doing so, they did what the U.S. couldn't do. But when we see this Panama team play and play so poorly, it's natural to imagine what could have been. We imagine that had the U.S. been able to find just one more point along the way in qualifying, they would have been the team facing England here in Russia. And in that moment, the enormity of the failure is crystallized. And the pain is real. And it won't be the last time this summer that we were reminded of the failure and we feel that pain. I hope that the U.S. men's national team players are watching. It should hurt. It should hurt badly. I hope that it's a pain that doesn't go away. And to that younger generation of players coming up, the McKennies, the Sargents, the Weyas, the Stephans, etc., use it to remind you. Use it to fuel you. Use it to make sure that under your watch, you and we are never in this position again. In early September, a U.S. men's national team legend hung up his boots. Here's my ode to Clint Dempsey from September 4th. Clint Dempsey is an American soccer badass. Yes, he brought the numbers, the titles, and the resume, but more importantly, he brought the swagger. From the moment he burst on the scene, there was something different about the player and his play. A rugged fearlessness, an unconventional grace, and a beautiful arrogance define the man and the player. Dempsey had no problem running through a wall for club and country, and he did many times, but his genius was often finding a way around it. His mind worked in mysterious ways, enabling him to pull off the magical. It didn't always happen, but he always made us believe it could happen. To quote Bruce Arena, he tried shit. Even in failure, we could appreciate the audacity of the attempt. Dempsey didn't suffer fools. He could be frustrating and stubborn on and off the field. He had very little patience for celebrity or media or small talk, and he didn't apologize for anything. He fought for every inch of his success. In doing so, he provided an example for current and future generations to admire and emulate. His legacy is in the generation of players he influenced, who took confidence and inspiration in an American trying and doing things on the field that we thought only others did. Badass, husband, dad, brother, son, hunter, fisherman, rapper, artist, Texan, competitor, enigma. It's all part of a true American original. So here's to Clint Dempsey, and here's to trying shit. A theme-frequent State of the Union podcast listeners will be familiar with is my baby with the bathwater premise. In my opinion, the U.S. needed and needs to cut ties with the failures of the past in order to forge a path forward. So I introduced my baby with the bathwater idea on September 11th's podcast. As the U.S. men's national team turns a dark page and starts a new cycle with an eye to 2022, this should not be a resurrection. This should be a reinvention. There should be ramifications to being part of the greatest failure in U.S. men's national team history. This is an inflection point. And yes, to a certain extent, I want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Or at least parts of the baby. But this isn't punitive. This is realistic. The core of the previous team, Bradley, Dempsey, Howard, Altidore, Cameron, Johnson, Zuzi, Bedoya, Nagby, Ream, Gonzalez, Beasler, they'll all be well into their 30s when the next World Cup rolls around. Right now, are there better options? Well, maybe not in some cases. But over the next four years, there could be if given the chance. So I want to see a new generation of U.S. men's national team player that understands the failure of the past and says, not on my watch, but isn't burdened or bridled to that past. Of course, you will have younger holdover players that will continue like Pulisic and Yedlin and Brooks, but they were never part of the veteran core of that team anyway. There should be a changing of the guard. 
to a new generation that will make up the heart, the soul, and the leaders of the 2022 team. But you got to foster an environment that enables this new group to emerge. And that group has to take ownership of the team, recognize and embrace the responsibility, but more importantly, the opportunity that they're being given. Now, this accelerated turnover in no way diminishes the accomplishments of the outgoing players or lessens our gratitude for their service or negates for some their legendary status. It just means their time has come and gone. Yes, the goodbye may come sooner than some wanted or expected, but then again, maybe that's the price for failure and reinvention. While there weren't too many bright spots to pull from during a year where the U.S. men's national team had just an interim manager in place, one player stood tall, literally, in a mid-September friendly against Mexico. Matt Miazga brought the banter to a game against El Tree, and I had to praise the U.S. center back on September 18th. Thank you, Matt Miazga. Thank you for being the villain that the U.S. men's national team needed. Your on-field overt mocking of Mexico midfielder Diego Lanez's diminutive stature was strategic, effective, and a wonderful injection of theater and personality into a game that sorely needed it. But this was not some kind of Ogie Oglethorpe type of goon action, no. This was part of 180 minutes where Matt Miazga was the best player on the field for the U.S. And at a time when U.S. players are often accused of being naive, soft, and immature, or lacking guile, cunning, and soccer smarts needed, Miazga stepped up with some trash talking that beat Mexico with their own game. Because after the incident, Mexico proceeded to lose control, lose a player, and lose the game. That the Mexican press and fans are crying foul and demonizing Miazga is the height of hypocrisy. Spare us your sanctimony. This is a team that perfected the dark arts long ago. Get your house in order first, on and off the field, before you start to throw stones. And let's be honest, this was a bit of gamesmanship that Rafa Marquez would be proud of. So, we see you, Matt. But now, so does everyone else. And whether it's making fun of an opponent for being short, having fungus on your shower shoes, or sporting a long red goatee, when you bring attention to yourself, you make yourself a target for revenge. And going forward, if you don't continue to back it up on the field, especially when it really matters, you'll get no quarter. The soccer gods giveth and taketh away, and they can have a twisted sense of humor. And make no mistake, Mexico will be back, and next time, it'll be for real. They won't forget you, Matt. Nobody will. If you wanted to rile up a group of U.S. soccer fans in 2018, all you had to do was mention two words, Michael Bradley. The U.S. men's national team veterans' inclusion in the team caused a split of opinion across the fan base. Did he deserve a call-up in the fall? Well, here's what I had to say on the matter on October 9th. A national team is not a meritocracy. There is no formula that spits out 23 names because a national team isn't the best 23 players. It's the best group of 23 players. It's a subjective opinion of human beings who pick who he or she feel will best help them win. And when it comes to looking at a player's club performance, form is often fallacy. U.S. men's national team interim coach Dave Serkin and I suppose newly appointed GM Ernie Stewart are the current humans that have called in veteran captain Michael Bradley to the latest U.S. camp. When last we saw Bradley, he and his colleagues were architects of the single biggest failure in U.S. soccer history, not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup. Now, even in the best of times, Michael Bradley is a lightning rod for differing opinions. Over the years, I have been a Bradley supporter. I still am. I have said that he can be world-class, and despite an abysmal season with Toronto, he still can be. 
but I don't believe he should be part of this next cycle. From a young age, Michael Bradley was given national team opportunities, even at the expense of others who maybe at the time, quote unquote, merited those opportunities. Now it's time to do the same. The U.S. doesn't play a World Cup qualifier for at least two years. Michael Bradley will be 35 years old in 2022. It's not that Michael Bradley can't do the job. It's that given the opportunity and time, maybe we can find someone who can do it better. Frustrations with the U.S. men's national team came to a head as the year came to a close. Still without a permanent coach after more than a year, the new face of American soccer said enough is enough. Christian Pulisic sounded off on the rudderless team, as did I on November 20th. There's an old fable about a miller, his son, and their donkey heading to market. They start reacting to the judgment from villagers, which leads to them losing their donkey. Basically, the moral is, if you try to please everyone, you may end up pleasing no one at all. On and off the field, I think the U.S. men's national team has too often tried to be everything to everyone. In doing so, we've wasted valuable time, resources, and energy. It's been over a year since the epic failure in Trinidad. The U.S. team still does not have a permanent coach. To be fair, the last year has seen a sea change in the leadership and landscape of U.S. soccer, with the election of Carlos Cordero as U.S. soccer president and the demand for change and reform with more transparency, oversight, and consensus. The Federation has been accused of operating in a vacuum, an autocracy with few checks and balances. It now seems the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction. They become afraid of making decisions. Paralysis by analysis. In their effort to appease the masses, they've neutered the national team. It languishes in stasis, unable to turn the page on a dark chapter and therefore unable to move forward. The players now look and sound frustrated. They look impatient. They sound impatient. They look rudderless. They sound rudderless. Christian Pulisic seems to be pleading this week, saying, quote, I just want to see a guy with a plan, end quote. We all do, Christian. U.S. soccer is taking the time to get it right. That's admirable, but needless. People are put in positions of power and authority to make decisions. We don't have to agree with the decisions, but they have to be made. When this decision finally comes, guess what? It isn't going to please everyone, and that's okay. But taking over a year to make that decision, well, just like in the fable, that hasn't pleased anyone at all. After what seemed like an eternity and a foregone conclusion as time dragged on, the U.S. Soccer Federation finally installed Greg Berhalter at the helm of the U.S. men's national team. The ex-Columbus Crew SC manager wasn't a sexy choice, and the hiring process immediately came under fire. I addressed the situation and what challenges lie ahead for Berhalter on December 11th. New U.S. men's national team coach Greg Berhalter spent this past week doing press and talking about his plan, his philosophy, and his challenge. Many have questioned the process that resulted in his hiring, which is fair, but I wonder if they would have complained had the process resulted in a coach named, say, Martino or Lepetegui. Because Greg Berhalter is not a big name. He does not have a glitzy resume. He is not a larger-than-life personality. In short, Greg Berhalter is not a sexy choice. In that sense, he is the anti-Jurgen Klinsmann. But Berhalter has the job, and he steps into a team and a culture that right now is adrift, cynical, and frustrated. For the men, the chant of, I believe that we will win, seems now to come with a question mark attached. There'll be talk of evolution and progression in the style of the play of the U.S. men's national team. But ultimately, like all coaches, Berhalter will live and die by the results. Yes, the bar's pretty low. Qualify for the World Cup, and he'll already do what the last team couldn't. But qualifying for a World Cup 
is still simply an expectation, not an achievement. In listening to Burhalter, you hear hints of a romantic and a desire to play what he sees as beautiful soccer. But when it comes to how this team plays, I'll settle for the best version of ourselves, or at least a better version. I believe there's beauty in that. However he goes about it, Burhalter's challenge is restoring faith in this team and making us believe again. Our nation turns its lonely eyes to you, Greg Burhalter. You may not be the coach we want, but you may be the coach we need. So, a long and strange year of the U.S. men's national team is in the books. A new federation president in Carlos Cordero, a new men's general manager in Ernie Stewart, and a new national team coach in Greg Burhalter all take this team into 2019. And I'll be right alongside them with my faithful co-host, David Mossy, on the State of the Union podcast. With that, I leave you with these parting words as we head into 2019. Take them for what you will, and remember to always size the day. The game of soccer is wonderful. It finds us each in different ways, and it shapes our lives to different degrees. But it is in us. Soccer inhabits a special place inside us all, and we carry it with us everywhere we go. At times, it's a labor of love, and at times, it's a proud calling. At times, it's an accepted burden, and at times, it's a maddening passion. But it's always a part of who we are. We feel it, and we can't ignore it even if we wanted to. Soccer, as we know, is the beautiful game. Yes, it can unite, illuminate, heal, and even save. But it is still just a game. We remind ourselves that the scores, the drama, even the hot takes are often just welcome diversions from the realities of real life. And they certainly pale in importance to things like health, happiness, safety, family, love, and friendship. So it is with that perspective that we celebrate our American soccer culture. Because it is special. It is unique. It is our own. It also remains a work in progress. And as we head into 2019 and continue to strive for a more perfect American soccer union, we will disagree. We will choose different paths. We will even fight. But as we grow and evolve, I believe that what will emerge will be something strong, something unique, and something worthy of our praise, protection, and loyalty. So, to all of you as part of the American soccer culture and family, I say thank you for what you are helping to build. I wish you all a Merry Christmas. I hope you have a wonderful holiday and a Happy New Year. Here's to good things to all of us in 2019 in soccer and in life.